From Muhlenberg College, this is 2400 Chew. Your host is Megan Keita. In each episode of this podcast, we talk to one Muhlenberg graduate about their current work and the industry in which that work is done. For this episode, Megan spoke with Catherine DeFelice Box, class of 97, lecturer of educational practice at the Penn Graduate School of Education and co-founder of Multilingual Works. As we do with most of these interviews, the conversation began by asking how and when Catherine became interested in her occupation. I graduated from Muhlenberg in 1997. I was an English and French major, and I wanted to be a poet. So my initial, actually, my initial desire was to be like my professors of English at Muhlenberg, notably Jill and David, who I know are legendary and deservedly so. I actually went to graduate school for literature. Uh, I have a master's in literature and I then started teaching at the university level, like in college composition, because being a poet doesn't always pay the bills. And what happened was I wound up moving to France because I got married and my husband was French. And so I went to France and I started teaching English in France. So now I was teaching like English to people that don't speak English as a first language. And the part that really drew me in actually was I was teaching a lot of immigrants to France. So actually didn't speak French as their first language either. And I became really close to those students. They were mostly high school, like late high school or preparing to go to university. And I became really drawn into their resilience and the challenges that they faced and how they were trying to adapt to a new community by arriving mostly from Africa. And so I really found a lot of passion, but I didn't have a lot of knowledge base. My background was in literature. So I started looking at graduate programs because I wanted to get a degree in English as a second language. And I found a program that I liked at Teachers College, Columbia University. I applied there. I began school there. And my intention was to go back to France and continue doing ESL. But I kind of fell under the spell of um, bigger pictures, bigger questions related to immigrant education. And I also found that because of my background, looking at language really closely, which I have to give a lot of credit to the English department at Muhlenberg for, I started to really engage in really interesting projects at Columbia. And so they asked me to stay and do a doctorate. And I said yes. And that kind of defined the rest of my path because then I went into academia. So I was a little bit older when when all of that happened. And then because this field is very niche and there's a lot of need right now in schools here in the United States, I started just kind of helping schools and teachers out. And then it sort of became bigger and bigger. And a colleague of mine and I one day said, why don't we just start our own kind of grassroots consulting company so that we can do this in a more systematic way? And that's what we did. That was 2000, it was 2020, right before the shutdown, actually, that we started Multilingual Works. Tell me a little bit more about that consulting that you do. Describe some of the issues that schools need help with and how you're able to kind of help them solve those. So we noticed that there was a lot of need that wasn't being fulfilled. So I would have students that were public school teachers that were taking my classes because they were getting their master's. And they would start talking to me about the struggles they were facing every day in the school with the fact that they had children that 
didn't speak English at a level that they were able to engage in the content, right? So they're in history class and they're having trouble understanding the concepts of history because language was a barrier. And it started to become clear to me how ill-equipped schools were, even with all of the diversity and equity and inclusion initiatives to work with uh, people learning you know, another language concurrently with learning their, their subject area. So as I had said, it kind of started out with me just working with students one-on-one and meeting with them in office hours. But then they would say things like, oh, could you come to my school and do like a, a professional development? At the same time, my colleague was getting a lot of questions because she was a Spanish teacher and she had worked a lot in higher education getting questions like, hey, could you help our community-based program that serves students from Honduras and Guatemala? Could you could you help us design lessons? And we noticed that we were doing just a lot of work sort of separately that was really focused on looking very closely at language issues and how to address them, both for adults that are arriving in communities and for children. And so it was really in conversations during boring meetings where we said to each other, you know, let's, let's do something more systematic. So we sat there in one meeting and drew logos and uh, wrote back and forth about what we might want to call this company. And then the shutdown happened. But in fact, the shutdown was a time when the need to work with students became greater. And so we really kind of started by word of mouth. We first had a, a nonprofit that was working with adults who were arriving from Central America and Haiti, who asked us to help them with a the curriculum, we started doing that. That person talked to somebody else who happened to be in a school district. And so they asked us, could you do some professional development? And then they said, well, actually, could you help us look more broadly at our entire program? And then they said things like, could you, you know, we're going to give your name to another school district because one of our colleagues works there and they're struggling as well. And so it started to get bigger. And the kinds of things we do now are curriculum development for uh, usually small community-based programs, whether they're after school or for adults. So we've worked with people like the Office of Refugee and Resettlement in New Jersey that oversees a lot of community-based programs. Another thing we'll do is we'll just go out to schools. And there are a lot of schools in the Philadelphia area that are, you know, have an influx of students from other countries who are struggling to integrate into the school community. So we go out, we visit the school, uh, we talk to the teachers, we follow the students around, we take a look at what's happening in the classrooms. And then we, you know, do a number of things, whether that be professional development or do an evaluation of the program or, you know, go to the school board and share with them what we're finding and what we think could help. So we do uh, a lot of things related to that. And then for the Department of State, I've gone to other countries that want to establish English programming, either in high schools or in uh, universities, and I've helped them get that off the ground when the majority of students that are going to be in their classroom, actually mostly all of them, don't really speak English, but they want to maybe offer, they want to offer courses for their medical students or their law students in English, and they need some help getting that off the ground. So yeah, we do a lot of different things. That is a lot. Can you tell me how that State Department relationship got started and why you were interested in that? The State Department runs a few programs for people that 
are experts in English teaching. They have ones that are for recent graduates, which seem really interesting. I, I never did it. If I could go back, I'd probably try it out where you're assigned to a country for like 10 months and you're paid a stipend through the Department of State and you you know, might help them set up a writing center or maybe do some cultural presentations, things like that. I became part of something that was probably stemming from that program. Um, I'm not sure how this program became, you know, became popular, but it's for people that have their doctorates or have a lot of experience teaching English. And when the embassy is presented in a country with a need. So in my case, there was a university in Chile that said, you know, we have a very big program related to mining and engineering. And there are a lot of international companies coming in because there's the mining that they're doing now is copper and lithium. And so a lot of companies from around the world are coming in and they want their students when they graduate from this program to be equipped to be able to work in a more globalized setting. When before they were mostly working and living in Spanish, now a lot of the companies coming in to work in the lithium field are German or Chinese, Australian, American. And so they want to equip their students with better English skills, but they also have to be trained in their field of engineering at the same time. So they can't just go to like a traditional English program. So they need to be learning concepts and the language at the same time. They had this need and they didn't have anybody who could address it. The embassy offers funding for places like for, for situations like this. And so that university went to the embassy in Chile, asked for funding, wrote up a grant proposal and got it. And one of, what the embassy does then is that they will try to locate somebody who specialized in that field to do this short term work for them. And so they have a bank of specialists that are each kind of tagged for different areas. You could be writing, you could be, you could be something like intercultural communication. And my specialty is content and language integrated instruction. And so they contacted me and said, you know, you're in our database. This Chile has this need. Can we match you up? And I said, sure. So then I had a couple rounds of interviews with university faculty there and since then, I've been involved with them on a series of phases that are focused on them kind of starting programs where they're teaching engineering courses in English. They're teaching also they decided they want to do medicine and law, things like that as well. So really, I applied straight to the Department of State to be part of their like database. And then I've been pretty consistently matched up um, and I and. My business partner also is part of that. So when we went, we actually went together. So it was technically we were considered two individuals, but we really sort of took our our expertise with us and worked on it jointly. You mentioned your specialty is um, what? What was the exact quote? The integration uh, integration of content and language, language, language integrated instruction. Yeah, and and just like you talking about this in like high schools and you know. K through 12 type settings, that is like, how does, <laughs> it, it feels like it would be such a huge challenge for someone coming here, a, a kid who doesn't speak English, who is expected to learn things in English 
while learning English. So like, how do you help schools? Like, what do schools do when this happens? Like, how is it possible to learn all of that at the same time? Maybe this is a silly question, but no, I, it feels silly. staggering to me. <laughs> well, and I think that's what's been happening, right? Is that there are there are cities in the United States that have been doing this for a very long time. And of course, I went to graduate school in New York City, which unsurprisingly has had high numbers of kids arriving. And so they have tried different things. But in places like Allentown, right, or um, I live in the Philadelphia, closer to Philadelphia, this is a newer issue where they have a, more than just one or two students. And so, yeah, they it's a staggering question. What do we do? So there's not an easy answer, but some of the broad things we do is teach or train teachers how to look at what they're teaching. And let's say you're teaching, I don't know, a math concept, addition and subtraction. How do you pull out the key language points? We know what, what kind of language does the student need to know to be able to show me that they can do addition and subtraction? And then in a perfect world, the ESL teacher will hone in on those language points hopefully in a situation where we're not taking the students out of the classroom too often to do separate instruction. It used to be that students would sort of spend their whole day separated from the class. But in our push to be more inclusive, that includes English language learners as well. And so we're trying to find innovative ways to allow teachers to co-teach or to have more to equip classroom teachers with some of the strategies that their ESL teachers theoretically are using so that when the student is with them and there isn't a specific ESL teacher there to support them, that they have some strategies, things like, how do I use my gestures? How do I use visuals? How do I decide what's important to know? What do I correct and what do I not correct? Because it's too much to expect students to be learning it all at once. And then bigger questions like, how do I know if the student's making progress? How do I know if the student has a, an issue with the content or whether it's an issue with the language, you know, and then also how can I support their, their first language development? You know, in a case like Spanish, that's an easier challenge than, you know, if a student comes speaking Karen, where there might be a lot less certified teachers or um, community leaders that have a lot of materials available. So we have to do some tailored recommendations for different schools, but there are some strategies that kind of overarch that can work for everybody. Can you talk about like your typical work day? Do you have a typical work day? And if you do, what it what does that look like? Ooh, good question. I usually teach my courses at Penn. I teach courses in TESOL methodology, content-based instruction, which is the content and language integrated instruction. And I teach things like student teaching practica where they're out, you know, doing their student teaching. So usually I have one or two courses that I'm teaching. And then when I'm in my office hours, I meet with students related to the courses. Of course, I, you know, have papers to grade <laughs> and all of that. And then oftentimes on Fridays and Saturdays um, is when I do a lot more work devoted to our business, also on evenings sometimes. Um, and, you know, like right now we are putting together a report for a school district. So we're working on that. When I have a chance to work on it, we're also 
talking about our new initiative, my partner and I, where we want to provide some teacher training videos to a community-based program, and we're going to try to make them open source so that other communities can access them for free. And so we do a lot of that work either on Fridays when I don't teach or Mondays and Tuesdays when I'm done earlier. And then over my breaks, like the most of my breaks are spent devoted to really getting the business going because it's it's become really a, a passion of both of ours to be able to really help in really concrete ways. But yeah, of course, my during the week, most of my job is spent doing what professors do. But I am not a tenured professor. I am a lecturer. So because of that, I don't have the pressures to do the the traditional research that other, you know, the tenure track do. So that does free up my time to be able to devote to this. And since I am in educational practice, doing practice oriented things is uh, what I'm expected to do as opposed to the more traditional getting a grant to do research that somebody who's an assistant professor would have to do. And can you talk about the most challenging aspects of your job and also the most rewarding aspects of your job? The most challenging aspects of, well, at university is really the the higher educational institutional machine, <laughs> which, um, you know, is its, is its own thing. And there's uh, a lot of changes going on um, due to both current political situations that all of the universities are going through on many levels. And so that's been really challenging. Coming back after the pandemic has been difficult as well. A lot of our students now who are graduate students, because I'm my school of education is a graduate school, they were home for two of the four years. And many of my students are international. So they were sometimes attending school in the US, but not actually in the US. So that's been a challenge to acclimate them to expectations of graduate work. So I would say that's been the biggest challenge. Time management for me is also a challenge with balancing my business and my university work. But the most rewarding part for me is going out into the schools or to communities and hearing our teachers and students saying that things have gotten better since you came in and gave us some pointers. That's really rewarding. And of course, seeing my students at Penn grow, you know, watching them when they're getting close to graduation and see where they've come from when they started saying, I want to be ESL or an EFL, which is just, I want to teach English, but abroad. When they start and then, you know, two years later when they're leaving and how far, how far they've come is really great. And I've been lucky enough to teach, I think, was it? Yeah. One Muhlenberg grad who completed our program uh, a couple of years ago. So that was really cool. What guidance or advice would you give to someone interested in doing what you do? You have to want to be a teacher and you have to really love the classroom. Very few people go out and say, this is what I want to do, but they kind of come to it. If you feel that call, follow it because it's a really rewarding field whether you're in a kindergarten classroom or a high school classroom, or you, you know, ultimately decide you want to go into more research or higher education field, it's really rewarding to see 
that you're able to address a need that a lot of people, you know, it's, it's not something that a lot of people gravitate towards. And so to have, to be able to really make a difference in this space is great. You know, you would most likely continue your education beyond the bachelor's if you do this, um, either in a master's program or higher. But really, I guess the the biggest piece of advice is make sure that you love teaching because it does take a lot of dedication, but it's totally worth it if you do. This episode of 2400 Chew was produced by the Office of Alumni Affairs at Muhlenberg College. It was recorded remotely and engineered in the studios of WMUH Allentown, Pennsylvania. Our opening and closing music from Cowboy Bebop is performed by the Muhlenberg College Jazz Big Band.